My name is Dustin Kelly, but everybody calls me DJ. I'm prior army, serving as both a Ford observer and a military police officer. I spent the last 14 and a half years as a police officer and detective in a large metropolitan police department. Two things that I've learned throughout my career. One, everybody has a story to tell. And two, the best stories are true. This is the DTD Podcast. Three, two, one, and we're live. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the DTD Podcast. This week in the studio, a man who joined the military at the age of 28. By age 29, he'd completed BUDS training. After eight years and a couple of combat tours with SEAL Team 7, this guest became an instructor at the Advanced Training Command. During his years of service, he discovered that he had some quite visible injuries that he had sustained, like a career-ending back injury and a quadruple hernia. This guest noticed more than the visible injuries he was being dragged into the abyss from the long-term effects of post-traumatic stress, traumatic brain injury, obstructive sleep apnea, and insomnia. In 2017, this guest suffered a devastating blow when his friend and teammate, Ryan Larkin, took his own life after being awake for five days straight. It was at this moment that my guest's life started to change. Robert dedicated his life and studies to the art and science behind sleep. No more depressants to go to sleep and no more stimulants to wake up. My guest has since been working with techniques for cognitive behavioral therapy and the psychology of sleep in order to help his fellow veterans, first responders, and the sleep-deprived public in general. It's my pleasure to introduce you to the founder of 6-2 Romeo and a former Navy SEAL, Robert Sweetman. What's going on, man? Hey, brother. Thanks for having me. Finally get on the show. Yeah, I'm I'm so glad you're here and we have a lot of stuff to talk about because you don't have the normal type of career that you hear. You hear these guys that they want to be soldiers their whole life. They, they, they get ready for that at high school. They go right in. You didn't go in until you're 28. So I want to go back like we always do in the beginning. Talk about your family. Was there a military background? Was there a law enforcement background or a public servant background and kind of what drove you through college and jobs and then 28 and then into the seal teams yeah absolutely i um do have a military family um it skipped a generation with my dad my grandfather was was uh master sergeant uh world war ii um i think he was still around for korea before he got out so he got some time in uh, i think 30 years um he died at the ripe old age of 88 um but I watched him struggle with alcoholism. I watched him hide things that we talk about, thank, thankfully, today, uh, like post-traumatic stress. Uh, I think they called it shell shock back then. Um, but yeah, a long line of, of military. Um, I've always felt like I was a patriot. Uh, my brother joined right out of high school, uh, the Marine Corps. And I felt like uh, my calling was in business. And so I followed that path for a number of years. and. It just was not as fulfilling as I thought it might be. Um, I mean, I did okay, but there was still this uh, inner Boy Scout, this patriot. And there was a bit about, you know, I wanted to be that old guy on the porch with one or two stories, not uh, the boring guy that sat in a corporate cubicle or anything like that. So uh, I had a bit of a, 
uh, change of heart at 28. I was uh, running a food service business in Greenville, South Carolina. And I said, I'm just so bored. I got to do something different. And so I originally went to sign up for the Marine Corps. And believe it or not, the Marine Corps was not going to accept me at that time. Um, I guess they had reached uh, capacity. They were at quota, which is they had a few good men. (laughs) Yeah, they had a few good men already. Um, Ended up going to the Navy recruiter and said, hey, will you give me a shot? And they said, yes. Um, I had accelerated scores uh, in terms of physical fitness. You have like a little test where you push ups, pull ups, run. Uh, Apparently, I did really well on that. And they gave me a SEAL contract. And the rest is history. And so when you go to the Navy, of course, you go through basic and everything, but you're on that path where you're doing like extra PT. You're hanging out with SEAL instructors during basic, right? Kind of prepping. I've heard a couple guys say that, that they they had some extra training and stuff. Is is that true for you too? For more fortunate candidates, yes, but not me. <laughs> um, I did have Doc Hooks. Uh, now, Doc Hooks was the deal. I'm giving mad props to Docs because he was there for us. He was our, what you call a mentor Uh, They had kind of a SEAL mentorship program, uh, but that was it. And I saw him maybe once every couple of months. I wasn't training with him. Uh, He had done, I I believe, an enlisted tour and then an officer tour and got out and was a lawyer. And he was he was no longer PTing with us, but he would bestow this knowledge. So the, the truth of it was that I had an inner burning desire and I knew that I was never going to quit, um, you know, this particular goal. And so I, you know, put my money where my mouth is. I burned all of my, I don't think I've ever told anybody this publicly. I burned all my furniture in the backyard, cleaned out the entire house at a 3000 square foot house. We put a, a seven foot pipe with a, a four inch, uh, piece of, of steel, a tubular steel on top. And that makes it really hard to do pull-ups because uh, your hands have to kind of do this sort of thing. It was really difficult, but we had to pull up over the bar uh, to get in the front door. And that's how we left too. It was just the rules. We did things like a thousand thousands, like a thousand push-ups, thousand sit-ups, 200 pull-ups in uh, a series. Um, I say us, I had two other buddies that were trying to train with me. They never ended up making it. Um, but these were the type of things we did. We'd sleep with the windows open, uh, just to freeze ourselves during the nighttime, just kind of mentally psyching ourselves out. And, uh, then we arrived in Coronado and the real pain train started as they say. So when you did all this stuff, do you think it, it worked? Because I've talked to a couple of other guys that did kind of training where they thought, okay, I should get ready for this. I, I've talked to one guy on the show where he ran on the beach every day, but he put sand in his shorts and ran out and swam and then put sand in his shorts and then ran again. And just to get it all chafed up because he thought that was going to help him. And then he actually talked to someone. They were like, you're an idiot. That will never work. And so there's all these kind of myths and misconceptions and stuff before people actually go to the training. Was there anything that you did beforehand, like you said, like getting cold at night that you think really helped you out? I, you know, I feel like I was destined to make it through training. I was mentally the type of person that could flip that switch. And I can talk about that a little bit more in depth, but uh, I think your friend's right. Because how do you prepare for a kick in the nuts? You, you can't, right? You, I mean, 
you can try, but that's not really smart. And I think that's the point. Um, so yeah, you know, mental toughness, uh, it's all mental out there because our bodies can go to a certain extent where we feel weak and tired and it's our mental fortitude that pushes us forward. Uh, like they say, probably 10 times farther than you ever thought you could go. And I experienced that is true. So it's, it's all up here. And when you go through, a lot of people say that, uh, that that's what it is. It's, it's, you know, physical, but it's more mental than anything that their brain is going to shut off before, you know, if you can keep it going before the body shuts down, you can keep going even after the body shuts down. That's true. Um, I would say that it wasn't necessarily, uh, healthy training through buds, it was more uh, toughness training to weed out those that could continue to operate despite the conditions, terrible conditions. Yeah. And, and you received an injury that I kind of wanted to talk about. Cause when I was reading about you and going through your stuff, it was a quadruple hernia. Now I've never heard of that. So can you kind of describe what happened and, and how you went through it and then how you eventually got over it? Yeah, the quadruple hernia, that just means four hernias, um, you know, around the groin area. Um, I had one mesh put in and the other ones they were able to just sew up. They did it laparoscopically, so I didn't have a lot of scarring. Uh, basically, I remember, I remember the pain of that area when it first all happened. Um, it was log PT and we were doing lunges with the log. And I'm just going down and up and down and up all friggin' day. And uh, I just tore up my insides. I tore up that whole area. And perhaps I was already weakened. I think that's a normal injury for somebody at 30 years old. Uh, but the way that I was pushing myself, it definitely sort of pushed me over the edge. So I had four areas where, you know, my insides were starting to protrude. Uh, relatively straightforward surgery. They just patched me up. Uh, but that definitely occurred as a result of, of log PT and lunges and buds. So how far are you into training when this happens? Training is rather lengthy, uh, to get into the seal team. So you've got basic training, uh, you've got pre buds, which is across the street in, uh, great lakes. And if you do okay there, uh, if your scores are looking good and you're healthy, they'll ship you out to Coronado and you're in sort of an in-doc phase where you're waiting to class up, uh, I guess, indoctrination. And th these, these phases continually get more advanced, whereas, you know, like in doc, you can't really be tortured in the surf zone, uh, but they mess with you, try to keep you awake at night, stuff like that. Um, but then once you class up, now you've been selected to be a part of an actual class. Now, from start to finish, from all the guys that were in depth pool, to all the way through MEPS into basic training and, you know, the people that said, I don't think I can do this, uh, all the way up to day one of BUDS, class 284, where I classed up, most of the people that, that started, that had the ambition, that had the, the actual PST scores to make it into the program were already gone, right? So once you start BUDS, I think they say it's a 70% washout rate is the average. Um, so leading up to that, I, I'm thinking it's more like a lot more because, you know, if, if it's uh, seven out of 10 that get washed out, I'd say it's 
probably nine out of 10 from the start to the finish of buds. So to answer your question, uh, there's first, second, third phase of buds, and then you have SQT, and then you get your trident, and then you start as a new guy. At this point, I was at first phase. This is where the majority of the guys get weeded out. Um, and that would be, I think, the fourth week of first phase is when we do Hell Week. Hell Week is five and a half days awake during training. Uh, and if the pressure doesn't get to you in the first uh, two or three weeks there, Hell Week will get you, uh, especially if you're faint of heart with uh, cold water. And so with yours, because you, you started with 284 and you graduated with them, so you weren't uh, physically recycled back or anything for the hernia, right? Uh, I kind of manned up with that and waited until after I finished training to get the surgery. Man, that, that had to hurt, especially with fins and kicking and stuff like that. That had to, that had to really be bad. So being the older guy there, were you the oldest guy in your class? Nope. Evan Bjorke, my boy, uh, we were born in both born in 81. Uh, we stuck it out together. Um, there was one other officer. Um, and I think it was us three that were at that age range. Uh, I believe I turned 29 the day I arrived in Coronado um, in June of 2010, I believe. And uh, yeah, um, 29, graduated in December uh, from BUDS. And yeah, Can't, I don't know why I did it so late. It was definitely brutal. Um, I was smarter for sure. Well, that was going to be uh, my question. Did you approach training yeah. and and this kind of achievement differently than a younger guy would? Now, you said that you you pushed through even with the injury, and that's something maybe a younger guy would do. But did you approach everything else in training from a different point of view, from a, from an older, more mature perspective, you think? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I don't think I would have made it through, even though, you know, it may be like 18, 20 even though I was in superior physical condition, um, I'm not sure I could have put up with the games. I'm not sure I was mentally prepared for that. But, you know, you're coming in at 30 and 29, and I'm the same age as the the older instructors. And I just, I've already decided who I am as a man. You know, there's, there's no Kool-Aid for me to drink, uh, as an 18-year-old might uh, look at it. So I just did what I could to make it through each evolution. Um, I did have techniques that I can share with you, um, but it, it literally is just making it from evolution to evolution. Well, let's talk about some of those techniques then that you did, because I think that a lot of people would just go full bore at it uh, and not necessarily have a technique, just go and go and go until like we talked about where their body just gives up. Yeah, well, let's talk about mental techniques because okay. uh, physically, you the minimum requirement is that you have to be prepared for this training. And there's only so much you can do. Um, you know, I've seen Olympic athletes fail out just as fast as, as guys that weren't as, in as good physical condition. Uh, but in terms of mental, uh, there's a bit of goal setting that's helpful, right? So if you have a tremendous uh, task in front of you, uh, the best thing to do is to start with the first step and take it in small bite-sized pieces. And so when I say making it from evolution, evolution, um, it really was making it through every single evolution. And when I say evolution, what I mean is um, 
we would have a particular exercise like uniform inspection and you would always fail. Uh, there's no, no way you can pass. I mean, in the unlikely event that you do pass, you're going to get hit on something uh, very shortly thereafter. But um, so that would be an evolution. You stand at attention with your uniform, they find something wrong with it, and then you go hit the surf and you destroy the uniform that took you so many hours to prepare. Um, that evolution might be challenging and you might have somebody that quits during that evolution. They just can't take it. It's too cold. It's too miserable. They can't take the shame. They can't take the criticism. Uh, they maybe worked really hard on that uniform and they just can't stomach the idea of having it destroyed yet again. It's too much. Uh, so making it from evolution, evolution is absolutely critical in this type of training. Uh, but I also wanted to make sure and reward myself psychologically, right? And so in goal setting, once you achieve a goal, it's important to acknowledge that and recognize it. And the way that I did that was, uh, you know, kind of a little bit of like attaboy through each evolution. But each day when I completed a day, I had a secret method that I used. And this method was I had actually tattooed my shirt on the back of the collar and it was day one. Right. And when I made it past day one, I took off that shirt and I retired it. And then, then on day two, I had, as you might guess, day two tattooed on the back of my shirt. And so I always kept that in my mind. And all I had to do was make it through that evolution, make it through that day. And I got to take off that shirt and put on another one. And that's an accomplishment because I'm one step closer. And that's what it takes, that small goal setting to achieve the larger goals. I've heard another guy that was a 160th pilot and actually a seal before he was a 160th pilot. And he did the, uh, he did the uh, meal plan method where it was just make it to each meal. So make it to breakfast, then make it to lunch, then make it to dinner and then make it to breakfast the next day. And that's how he said that he got through was almost like you're saying is just take those big tasks and break them down into small bite-sized pieces and make it through the day like that instead of setting your sights so far ahead that you kind of lose, you know, sight of what you're doing. Um, wh while you're going through, are you being pointed out as being older? Uh, are you um, being messed with any more than anyone else, any less? What's kind of the scenario for you? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Anything that they can use to get under your skin, uh, they will do that. Uh, fortunately, I don't care, right? So yeah, I'm the old guy. Yeah, occasionally I got in the goon squad. Uh, maybe I didn't run as fast as I did when I was younger, but actually I was in pretty good shape for my age and I could keep up with most of the guys. There were some young gazelles that were really fast running, um, but Overall, I think my physical fitness uh, spoke for itself. Um, I did have my weak moments. Um, everybody does. But, you know, there's that switch. Um, at some point in time in this type of training, you're going to reach a wall and you're just physically not going to be able to train any longer. Because like when I trained in track or I trained in wrestling, you can only push yourself so far and then you're exhausted, right? Once you reach, exha reach exhaustion, that's when the real training begins, right? And so how do you function? How do you carry on uh, once you've reached your limit and then just continue for days and days and days? Um, and that's where you stay. So there's a bit about, um, you know, mental toughness. There's a bit about um, conserving just a little bit so that you can protect yourself uh, because once you become uh, unable to control your body because you're too fatigued, um, 
then you start to look at injuries. Uh, flexibility really helps out with that. But um, you don't want to get injured because that's outside of ringing the bell and quitting because it's too much. Uh, that's going to be your next way out is by breaking a neck, breaking a hip, you know, blowing out a shoulder, uh, something serious. And it's unfortunate. It happens all the time, all the time. And you're done. Maybe you can come back, but uh, at that point in time, you're done. So when we, I want to go back for a minute and talk about, because the way I want to talk about this whole conversation that we have, I, you and I talked about the mental aspects and, and things that break down mentally in you. Um, you said that you grew up and you thought that maybe your grandfather dealt with alcoholism. Did you deal with any of that kind of stuff? Did you deal with depression, mental illness, anything like that growing up through family members, through yourself, through anything like that? Um, and, and I want to, you know, kind of use this as a scale as we go through your life, as we get older and older. Yeah. So the point with the grandfather was that, um, you know, I just want to normalize, um, the discussion about mental health, right? Um, you know, my grandfather struggled with it until the day he died. Um, in my twenties, I probably partied too much through college and so forth. Uh, there was a bit about wanting to have a little bit more discipline, right, in terms of partying and staying up late and just, you know, maybe I needed a little bit more uh, structure in my life. That was one thought. Uh, but definitely joining the military, one of the goals was to sort of um, not only pay my dues to my country, but become the man that I wanted to be. The pill was a little bit uh, hard to swallow, though, because once I reached where I thought I needed to be, um, more dark truths started to uh, unveil themselves. And the truth about war and the truth about politics and the truth about, you know, the military industrial complex and all these things is not necessarily what you see in the recruiting video. And so you go down range and likely take lives and you come back and you think about it. And for some people, uh, those experiences can be traumatic and they can create echoes in for the rest of their lives. Sometimes some people are able to metabolize those traumas and they, they don't create this residual effect that impacts people in the same way. Um, but it's actually pretty common for people to um, carry a lot of this stuff with them. And then they come back and maybe they're drinking too much or they're using drugs or they're uh, you know, one of the things that I focus on is just sleep health. And you'd be surprised how many people are spun up w without even using drugs or alcohol. They're just spun up and the insomnia and everything just gets to them every single night. And believe it or not, uh, without that sleep, you can lose your mind. I mean, you can just lose it. Well, but before this, when you were going through all your training, n none of this was present, though. The insomnia wasn't present. None of that was present yet. Um, no. e ever had any trouble? Did you ever have any trouble sleeping? Anything like that? Because some people, you know, they say their whole life they've had trouble sleeping or a lot of guys in the military can go to sleep anywhere they're standing if they need to, you know, to get a quick nap in or whatever. Um, you never had any trouble like that though, right? I don't recall having any trouble sleeping, uh, growing up, um, other than just wanting to stay out late. Um, I'm a bit of a night owl, my chronotype tends to prefer to stay up later. I'm that way. And my mom's that way. Lots of my friends are that way. Um, but it was definitely uh, a combination of trauma, 
of um, military sort of indoctrination into a sleepless culture, um, a number of different things that, you know, put me into what we call circadian scarring, right? So I just had terrible sleep cycles. Uh, combined with that, I had anxiety. I had, um, you know, traumatic memories that would come back, uh, things like that. And so all of these things impacted my sleep. And so I went from somebody who didn't really have sleep problems to somebody who was told that they don't need sleep and that it's not important. And you'd continue operating uh, to complete the mission, no matter how much sleep you had, uh, to realizing that the lack of sleep really did impact my life and it really did impact others' lives. And then now, kind of today, finding solutions and being able to apply those and, and help people directly. So you get out of, of training, you go and you're the new guy. Um, how's everything going with mental health, uh, sleeping, all that kind of stuff as you get there? Um, because like I said, I want to do kind of a scale of, of what we're looking at. I was definitely not the best new guy uh, because very hard headed, uh, come in as an older guy and younger guys telling me what to do. And my mom told me that I would struggle in the military because I don't like people telling me what to do. And she was right. Uh, I butted heads with a lot of people. Uh, but still, I don't think that sleep was an issue. Um, you know, we all have traumas from earlier in life. Uh, perhaps we don't realize those. Some people would say that uh, the real traumas are in childhood and then the military traumas are, are more of a moral injury. But I think it was the operational tempo that really started to wear on me, which, you know, I did eight years. That's, I can't imagine these uh, guys that have done 30 years uh, with this crazy op tempo. And when I say op tempo, I just mean that's the operational speed at which you're doing things, um, both on missions, but also, I mean, just training. I think we we're gone for like 253 days out of the year or something like that. Just gone working all day, uh, not getting enough sleep, waking up early and just pushing our bodies to the limit so that we could hit every single wicket that, you know, our troop needed to hit to be prepared for deployment. So how far are we into in year wise, when you come in, uh, when GWAT happens, where are we at kind of time frame? Yeah. So I joined in 2010. I really missed a lot of the, um, you know, the Twin Towers falling, uh, you know, 05 in Iraq. Uh, never went to Afghanistan. So I kind of missed some of that. Um, and so my time was from 2010 to 2018. Uh, and you can break that into sort of two year segments. The first two years was kind of training. Second two years was my new guy pump at seven. Uh, third two years was my second pump with seven. And then my fourth two years was as an instructor over at advanced training command. And then I punched out. So, so when you're over there, are you single? Do you have kids? Do you have anything like that? That is kind of diverting your attention. Cause we talk a lot on the show about things that divert your attention. You have a family to take care of or a girlfriend or a wife or whatever it may be. Did you have any of that stuff as you're doing your first kind of new guy tour, your first combat tour, anything like that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I had a wife, a girl that I married when I uh, left and joined the military. Um, 
that didn't last very long. The first time I was gone for like 30 days, she was pretty much done with that relationship. Um, that was kind of a, a poor choice to get married so quick. I had no reason to. I was just doing it. Uh, I think it's kind of a common thing for military folks to do, unfortunately. Uh, and then a year or two later, I married another girl. Um, and I think the divorce rate in the teams is something like 98%. Um, the op tempo, the deployment cycles, um, the amount of time you're gone away from your family is just, it's not conducive to a healthy relationship. And if you do have a strong spouse um, that sticks around, it's still very difficult because you don't even know the person uh, who you're married to when they come back home. So can we talk about that a little bit? Can you go into a little more depth about that, about not knowing? Because would you would you agree that even you really don't know who you are kind of the first time you come back? Correct. Yeah. Um, I found myself towards the end of my career and leaving the Navy. You, you think you know who you are. You think you know where you're at. Um, but having gone through a tremendous amount of healing since then over the last five years. Um, I realized now that I was going through a tremendous amount of brain fog and, you know, traumatic brain injury, which are these blast concussions, uh, astroglial scarring in the brain, um, PTSD, which is long-term uh, post-traumatic stress. These recurring echoing uh, nightmarish thoughts um, can cloud your mind. It can cause insomnia. It can keep you up. It can cause night terrors. You get bad sleep. You're not fully recovering and you just stay in this brain fog. And so when you're in the brain fog, I mean, you can be taken advantage of, you're not fully, uh, seeing everything, uh, and the sleep, you know, leads into a lack of ability to even, read facial expressions. It's a slippery slope. And so when we look at the whole person in terms of, uh, you know, Hey, what's going on with this person? Why are they acting like this? Or what's their main problem? Um, there's so many different facets that goes into it. Uh, there's a lot, I, I think one of the most impressive pieces of uh, writing that I've read recently that explain, um, what, you know, the, the operator goes through or the Navy SEAL or the SF guy uh, is actually called the operator syndrome. Uh, Dr. Free wrote it. Uh, he's a personal friend. He's a very smart guy and he's dedicated a lot of his time towards unpacking this problem and solving it. But when you read the paper and I think it's publicly uh, distributed, if not, I can get you a copy. It really outlines all of the different things that we're all experiencing. And you're like, Oh, I, can relate to that. I have that problem. And so you're reading through it and like 80 or 90% of the things, Oh, that's me. Um, so once you identify what's going on, then you can kind of look at modalities to, uh, heal or treat yourself. Uh, but a lot of times guys don't even make it that far and they turn to alcohol and sometimes suicide or just, there's a litany of different issues that people can, uh, that can pop up in people's lives. Uh, the hardest thing to do is to face yourself and be honest with yourself and start to look for help and to start to heal all of these, this constellation of issues that you've accrued through a, a career in the military. So let me ask you on your, on your first deployment, how, how are you feeling? 
what's your outlook on life, what's your outlook on deploying the first time. I mean, you, you've said that this is what you wanted to do. You make it through all this training. You get there. It's been a long road. What's your outlook on life and just kind of your outlook for the future as you arrive into the first deployment? To be honest with you, new guy life is not the best life. Uh, you try to keep your spirits up, but you're constantly getting hammered and, and put down by the older guys. Um, having just made it out of buds, which is terrible, right? Buds and SQT. Now you show up and you're a new guy. You have an inert uh, trident, a blue trident on your chest, which means that you're not a real seal, right? Uh, blue and inert stands that's diving um, vernacular. That's how we identify uh, training equipment is it's blue. So um, yeah, I'd say that my outlook on life was less than optimal. Um, you know, you try to keep a good uh, positive spirit, but you know, the first four years of your career is kind of just <laughs> tough. It's really tough. And so um, you just have to humble yourself. Uh, that first, you know, new guy pump. Um, I mean, I just made tons of mistakes and it, it felt like I was constantly screwing up and there was no latitude for any mistakes that I did make. Everything was always highlighted and exposed and probably on purpose. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was, it's pretty rough and you're keep maintaining the same op tempo, uh, throughout an entire career. I recall until, until I got to advanced training command on the last couple of years, my, uh, time in the Navy, I don't recall there ever being a day that was the same. Every single day was different and every single day had its own challenges. So you just continue to march forward. It's, it's kind of a mentality that you develop. You have to. So why not? I guess it's the easiest way to say it. Why not walk away? It's not the greatest four years. You're done with your contract. Why not walk away? We had a six year contract, so I'm on the hook for two more years. Um, but you know, maybe I painted that picture a little bit grim. Um, I mean, you're a Navy SEAL, right? You've made it. You get to shoot automatic weapons. You get to jump out of airplanes. You get to throw grenades and do all this cool stuff. You get some of the most um, elite training that's available for the military anywhere in the world. And so for every bad thing, every complaint that I have on the other side, there's another cool thing that balances it out. I mean, like, you're living the dream. You made it. And how many other people didn't make it that wish they made it? Guys that I tried to stay in touch with and they were depressed or very sad that they didn't make it into the SEAL teams. And so I did want to, you know, show a little bit of gratitude for, I guess, maybe being lucky enough to make it that far, uh, but it didn't make it easy. Um, we have a saying, the only easy day was yesterday. And that's because every day is tough. So you're on the hook for two more years. Uh, you're doing this deployment. It's it's not the best situation, but it's not the worst situation. Um, how are you doing mentally? Now we've talked about what you had going into it. As you pass through this combat deployment and as you get done, how are you mentally? I think I'm doing okay. Um, and it, as long as you stay busy and you keep moving, I think most uh, guys are okay. Um, it wasn't until um, I got out and started slowing down that it really, you can't hide anymore, 
right? You're there, you're going through the same routine every day. It's mundane. Um, you, you have to kind of be accountable for your actions and the things that you say. You can't just keep running and gunning and, you know, perhaps hiding some of the effects of traumatic brain injury or hiding some of the, uh, depression from, uh, post-traumatic stress. So, I, I mean, I think it probably was building and was there, um, may, maybe my whole life, but definitely through military, uh, service. And then it was sort of the transition out that was difficult. And that's where, um, including myself, you know, I saw a lot of guys start to really struggle with that and they didn't, they didn't have the same purpose. And so there wasn't a way to keep the train on the tracks. Um, we're able to sort of hide a lot of the, you know, these moral injuries from, uh, overseas, as long as we can just keep going, keep going, bury it somewhere deep and far away and just keep going. So sometimes it's easier to just keep going than to uh, check out and leave the military. And you you continue on, though. Is there anything on this first, and of course we'll get into the second one, on this first one, is there anything that stood out to you that really you can go back to it at a at a drop of a hat? Um, anything that stuck out to you? I can look back at my like law enforcement career, and there's I can drive by a certain place and remember course that's not going to be the same with you guys but is there something that always it's not at the forefront of your mind but it can definitely get there in an instant yeah absolutely i think that's kind of the definition of of uh, pts or ptsd um and you know i think you brought up a really good point that um and i'm starting to unpack this because now i'm working uh directly with firefighters actually uh so i'm working with firefighters and veterans but when we go down range and we bring destruction to a particular group of people, um, you know, we can do some damage and we can uh, maybe feel okay with that, maybe have nightmares about it. But when we leave, we can kind of leave some of that behind. And I was reflecting on it this morning on a discussion with somebody else that, you know, that's not the case for police and fire because I'm working with some guys up in LA. And like you said, like they can, go down the street and like, there was a murder, there was a suicide, there was a homicide. We, we lost a child over here. And no matter how much they want those thoughts to go away, now those thoughts are tied to a geographic location. So they, they have this engram in their brain where it's like, okay, I can't get that out of my mind. I saw what happened on those steps over there and, and I live here. And now I have to experience that. Whereas the military veteran might, I don't want to say have it easier. That's definitely not the tone that I want to kind of cast on this, but um, sometimes those things can be left behind downrange. Now, reintegrating with society and learning how to function and, and communicate and be a normal person sometimes can be really difficult uh, for veterans when they come back. Uh, but I think that when comparing it, it, I think it should be said that sometimes police and fire are really towing a very heavy line living within where they've they've had these traumatic experiences so let's use that one on you when you get back you said that you know sometimes your spouse your significant other whatever doesn't know who you are we talked about that you might not even know who you really are as you come back 
how is it between you and your spouse? There's no kids yet, right? Uh, my spouse had a daughter uh, okay. that I adopted, and then we had a kid after I got out. Okay, uh, boy. Yeah, um, it's challenging. It's challenging because you see things through a certain glass, and you might want to uh, behave in a military kind of way, and so you know, in the military, things are done done a certain way, and you you know get things done on time and they're done uh, correctly. And if they're not, then there's sort of a, you know, punishment or retribution or something. Uh, well, you can't really do that with your wife. Uh, you have to have a little bit of a, a softer um, communication style, um, a lot more flexibility, um, things that don't bother me. For example, cold weather or hot weather or bugs or this or that, you name it. Don't really bother me as much, but my spouse and my children uh, might be very sensitive to things like that. And so sometimes it's hard, you know, coming from a community that is is just a wolf pack, um, guys that kind of eat each other sometimes, uh, very tough and can endure anything. They don't complain. Actually, a lot of a lot of complaining goes on, but um, not the stuff like, oh, it's too hot out, that kind of stuff. And so you come back and now you're dealing with um, a very different type of um, communication style. Um, and it can be very challenging. It was challenging for me, um, challenging for, I think, probably most of the guys that I knew coming back to that type of situation. Well, so my question, when you when you talk about that, these guys don't gripe. Law enforcement is kind of the same way. People gripe just to gripe. I mean, that's just a, a thing. Yeah. You know, we want this, and then you get it that way. Well, we want it another way. That that happens. But I think that's almost not even – I wouldn't even put that as griping. It's a way to pass the time. It's a way to bond with yeah. each other. If you can have a common enemy or a common problem that you don't like, it makes when it sucks go a lot quicker, a lot better. I think you would agree with that about the complaining part, right? Absolutely. Yeah. So, and you're right when you come home and, and you have a spouse and you talk a certain way at work, uh, to whoever you're working with or whatever, you have to change that whole approach. I think that it would be, you know, you say that, that, that first responders and stuff have it harder cause it's their day to day. I would think in this case though, military would have it harder because you're gone for so long at a time and you ingrain that, uh, that kind of just way of life. Your family back here has a way they take care of things. You have a way you take care of things. And then I've heard guys say when they get back, they're just kind of in the way of the problem being taken care of. And it's very hard to ingratiate themselves back into that kind of clan. Would you agree? Yeah. Yeah, that's 100% true. And so when you come back and you see all this stuff, um, how is it that you work through that? Because you've had ways that you've always kind of had a mental way you do things. How do you do it when you come back and figure out, okay, maybe this isn't going exactly like I want with my spouse. How do you figure that out? And how do you fix that coming from you? Well, I, I didn't. She divorced me. Um I, a lot of lessons learned there. Um, a lot of healing that I needed to do. Um, a lot of 
you know, working on, you know, brain injuries as well as, uh, you know, cultural personality traits that I picked up in the teams, uh, as well as just learning to be a little bit more patient because in the teams, um, you know, you have tactical patience, but it's pretty much go, go, go all the time. And it's easy to kind of put that pressure uh, on your family and that's not fair to them. So, you know, if I had a do over, I definitely like if I could go back and talk to my younger self uh, five years ago and say, hey, here's what's going on. Here's the wisdom I want to pass down. It would be, you know, definitely start looking at therapy and, and any type of brain treatment and try to fix some of these things because you can't, um, you know, hide this. Eventually it's going to come out. And if it is, you just don't want to come back from, you know, honorable service and make your spouse's life miserable. Um, that's, that's not what we want. Um, so yeah, I, uh, wish I had a, a do over on a lot of those conversations, um, and frankly arguments. Um, but I think now where I'm at, um, having gone through a lot of my own work and healing, getting a little bit of balance in my sleep, which actually improved my testosterone levels. Um, I was able to get off uh, the testosterone supplements that the Navy gave me because I wasn't sleeping and my hormones were out of, out of whack. Um, you know, just being healthier and more in balance. Um, I feel like I'm a lot closer to whole than when I originally transitioned out of the military. And that's what I want to try to, to talk about and give to others as they transition, or maybe they're still active or they've been out for a while and they're struggling. Uh, Cause now I have some tools. I've been working pretty hard on this for a while. So let me play devil's advocate with you for a minute. Okay. So you say you would like to have a lot of do overs. You would go back and you would tell your younger self, Hey, do this and do that. I'm going to pose the question to you that you as yourself right now, you go back and you talk to these young guys or you talk to these guys that are out there, law enforcement, first responder, whatever it may be. You know you back then. An old guy's coming and telling you this. How do you get through to them? Because a lot of times you can't get through. Sometimes the message will slip through and they'll kind of understand because I'm telling you, it happens in law enforcement. The older guys will pull you aside and go, look, I understand you want to do all this and I want to, I understand you want to do that, but maybe do it like this and, and it'll be a lot longer. It's not a sprint. It's a marathon and all those kind of things. How do you get through to the people that are younger than you or that are out there doing it and make them understand it doesn't come from a place of, I'm trying to correct you. I'm trying to help you elongate your career or elongate your, your sanity. Yeah. That's, that's a tough one. I think I probably would not have listened at that age and maybe, um, a little bit, I, I think in no matter who the audience is, I think we have to talk about what's in it for me. Right. And if you want to look at longevity of career, that's kind of hard to, to wrap your head around as a, a new guy or, uh, somebody new on the force. Uh, but when you talk about performance, human performance, um, the ability to, you know, do things that you want to do, uh, in a sustained manner for a period of time. I think that can get attention of folks. Um, 
it just depends on where they're at in life. Um, I know that where I'm at now is actually stronger, both mentally, spiritually, and physically um, than where I was five years ago. Um, and that's because I'm, I'm taking sort of um, a holistic approach to all of the things in my life. And, you know, I don't drink alcohol. I meditate each morning. I uh, do breathing exercises. I stretch. I cook all my own meals. Um, good nutrition is important. And because I do all these things, I'm just in the zone now. But when you go back to my military service when I was younger uh, and arguably thought I knew more at the time, uh, I had a number of different problems. You know, we drink all the time in the teams. We would stay up all night and not get sleep. We'd eat garbage food. And then eventually it catches up to you. So perhaps the answer to the question is, is that you can't really get through to that younger person until they've experienced that loss and have a desire to change. And it seems weird to say that, but I, I agree with you 100%. We want to get on the forefront of it because we keep saying that would be the best is to get in front of this train before it goes off the rails. But it almost seems in life like you have to take some of those lumps to understand, oh, wait, maybe I maybe there is a better way. Maybe there's an easier way to do this. They always say, you know, work smarter, not harder. And, and I agree with you 100%. Maybe it does take that time. Uh, are you learning this? Because now we're kind of in between your first and second deployments. Are you learning this at all uh, to kind of what you're doing? No, no, I didn't learn any of that until later. Um, I think I was probably just trying to, they say you're drinking through a fire hose, right? I was probably just trying to, to keep it all together, um, to be able to fit in with as a new guy in the platoon to be able to learn the skills that I needed to be a SEAL, uh, to be able to overcome what seemed like endless failures um, for years and years. Um, not because I was a failure as a person, but because it's just that challenging and there's no um, sort of do-overs for a lot of these things. And so you just learn the hard way. And so the lessons that I'm kind of focused on now are more uh, philosophical and existential. Whereas at the time I was dealing with problems that were right in front of my face and trying to put out fires, if that makes sense. No, it does. But it makes me wonder the question, like you said, you don't feel like a failure. There's, there's failure after failure for years, you said, and you don't feel like a failure as a person. But I got to just say, from my point of view, there has to be a point where you do kind of feel like a failure as a person. Uh, even if it's for a brief moment in time, it has to get to you at a certain point. It does. There's many times that I just had to, that I broke down and just had to pray to God. And so as you, as you do this and you kind of go through, you know, everything that you're doing, it seems like there's growth there, not a ton of growth, but there is still growth there going on. How are we looking going into second deployment? And and I mean everything, like we stated in the beginning. Family life, uh, are we married, are we not married? All those kind of things, what our outlook is going into it, because we're going on five years, almost six years now, going into the second one, right? Yep. So yep. give us kind of a lay of the land for you. Yeah, um, I felt like I was in pretty good shape. Um, I was having a pretty good platoon. Um, I was in charge of quite a bit of different things uh, for platoon 
responsibilities. Um, I was on track to have a good deployment. Um, we went to Iraq that deployment. Um, still, you know, trying to fit in. You're always trying to fit in uh, with these groups. It's platoon life is uh, it's a wolf pack, right? You got to get in where you fit in. And uh, so I had a pretty good deployment. Um, a lot of things that I still reflect on, right? Um, you know, doing our best to eliminate as many ISIS fighters as we could uh, that summer. And that's what we did. And so, you know, seeing a lot of that was probably the most um, sort of uh, gore that I'd seen. Uh, a lot of it was over ISR feed or, or from a, a distance um, rather than like what you might imagine, hand-to-hand -hand combat kind of thing. Um, but yeah, that was uh, carried some thoughts from that for sure. Well, let's talk about that, uh, if you don't mind, because you're saying it's mostly from an ISR feed. It's not from a face-to-face, hand-to-hand kind of thing. And so I think a lot of people looking in from the outside that, once again, will go back to military, law enforcement, first responders that haven't worked and either seen it from a distance, know someone that's been involved with it, or seen it up close. There's a way that it sticks around. And, and I think that when you – I think you kind of – say it too easily by saying, well, it was by ISR feed. Uh, it, it's a little different. Can you explain why it sticks in your brain? Uh, not necessarily what you saw or anything like that, but I want people to understand that just because you're at a distance, it might make you feel like you're right next to it. Well, I think it, it has to do with context. Um, you know, we're a lot of times we're training Iraqi forces and then sending them over uh, to fight ISIS, which could be their cousins, people that were in the tribe just a month ago. Um, so there's a little bit of a, a, it's kind of a weird dynamic. Um, but you know, you're sending those guys over and they get a hundred yards out and they start hitting IEDs and you can sort of physically see them, uh, but you definitely have, um, you know, some type of uh, camera overhead and you can kind of see body parts going everywhere. And then you see the reaction of the remaining uh, people in the tri tribe. Maybe they're distraught. Maybe they're shooting, crying. They, they're experiencing loss. And you're just watching this whole thing go on. Um, so you can get very easily tied up into the whole storyline of the people and of their loss. And it just begs the question, um, what are we trying to accomplish? Um, and that's kind of one of the big takeaways that, that I got, I thought it might be more of like, oh yeah, let's just go, you know, eliminate everybody. That's what we do. Uh, but then after the fact, it's kind of like, well, not really sure why we did that. I mean, we know why we need to eliminate ISIS. Um, but the methodologies and the rules, um, make it seem, um, less than, I feel like we definitely could have gone about it not not at a tactical level but strategically uh from the top all the way down um i wouldn't say we were there to uh accomplish a mission uh that made any sense to me at the time if that makes sense well i'd like you to go a little more in depth and explain why it didn't make sense to you and then the question would be does it make sense to you now 
no, it didn't make sense then. And it didn't make sense now, uh, unless, um, your goal is to, uh, profit from the war, unless your goal is to sustain a war and continue to allow defense contractors to, um, profit from that. If that's the goal, then yeah, we succeeded. Uh, if that's not the goal, if the goal, you know, from our perspective at the tactical level is like we have an enemy, uh, we want to have some sort of a assault and eliminate the enemy from being a threat. We weren't doing that. We weren't allowed to do that. We were allowed to do a little bit and then back off just enough to keep um, the war machine in balance. As you move through this, you you do your second deployment and then you're going to go be an instructor. Um was that by design? Was that by chance? How did that happen? I had hurt my back and I was up for a third platoon and I didn't know if the back was going to get better or worse. I took an x-ray and it looked pretty bad. Um, I chose to continue in an instructor billet, hoping, hoping that I would heal and maybe I could get back to doing what it was that, um, I signed up to do. And, you know, sort of once you make it past that threshold that we talked about of, of being a new guy and kind of just drinking through the fire hose, well, now you have a, a tiny little bit of seniority and now you start to build a little bit of rank and things get a little bit easier for you and you can still kind of do your job uh, and maybe have a little bit of fun uh, if, you know, fun is, is part of what you signed up for. Um, so for me, I was looking at, um, my back as I, you know, I can overcome this. Right. And so I went into the surgeon over a period of time and I continued to go into, um, the Balboa medical center as I was at the instructor position and the x-rays were not good. Uh, the surgeon recommended that I do a three level fusion. Um, I think, you know, for some people that might be sort of common. Um, but for me, um, it was a grade two spondylolisthesis, and they were saying, okay, you're not going to run again, and this is going to degenerate and you won't be able to walk, uh, and give it a few years. You'll be in a wheelchair. Um, I told them that I was not going to go through with the surgery. And so when I walked away from surgery, that was sort of against medical advice and they med boarded me for that. So. Any kind of pain pills using anything like that at this point? No, uh, no pain pills. I guess you could say, uh, you know, if, if ibuprofen's a pain pill for sure. Yeah, yeah but no, no, no. We're talking about, you know, something that, no, no that's going to be, yeah, no opiates, no prescriptions, anything like that. Any reason why you, you took that approach to it? Yeah. Uh, my belief is that I don't want to mask the pain. Um, I want to feel the pain and I want to know that's the indicator as to where my body's at. And I wanted to heal, figure out a way to fix the back without surgery, because my opinion was, is that, you know, coming from a, a holistic, natural kind of, um, health background, that's just how my family rolls, right? We prefer, um, homeopathic remedies and stuff like that. The last thing I wanted to do was have a surgeon cut on me. And by the way, that, you know, there was no intention of sort of aligning my spine. You know, I've gone to chiropractors and kinesiologists my whole life. I, I looked at the doctor and I said, 
don't you want to, you know, put my spine back into place where it should be and then fuse it? He's like, no, we don't do that. I'm like, man, I'm, this is stupid. I'm not doing this. The, the plan was to drill holes into, um, let's see, S1, L5, and L4 and put scaffolding around it. And there's like a 50% chance that in five to 10 years, you're going to have to put more scaffolding at the next one because now the pressure is, is put on the next disc and vertebrae and the problem is not solved. Um, so I sought out a way to solve the problem. And I can tell you that after years of doing uh, yoga, chiropractic, stem cell therapy, everything, that I have a really good range of motion and I'm pain-free. And I think that I'll never be back to 100%, but uh, I never did the surgery and I'm feeling pretty good these days. So, Well, and I think as you get older, no one's going to be back to 100% as you get older. I mean, it, it, that's, just, that's just part of life as you get older. I'm not saying that you can't be strong and all those kind of things, but you, we're never going to be 21 again. It's it's just not going to happen. So it's a, a great way that you look at it. Now, being in this training command, this is where the story takes goes in a completely different direction. And I want to talk about your friend. And this is 2017. You got out in 2018, right? That's right. Yeah. So, Eight years on the nose. Yeah. So 2017, we're at the training command. Uh, your friend Ryan Larkin takes his own life. Um, yep. I, I want to know, had you seen this before with other service members? Had it ever impacted you this closely? I, I just want to get a feel for the whole kind of situation as you're taking this in, because like you said, you're at a good point. You walked away from that. You're training. It, it's not going perfect, but there's nothing really to complain about. This has got to hit you like a ton of bricks, though. It did. Um, I, you know, was struggling with the back stuff. Um, the sleep stuff was starting to creep up. Um, my mental health was starting to be impacted. And then uh, Ryan, who I saw kind of starting to change um, the, the deployments and the lack of support for mental health at the... Uh, at the command and just what I saw was, you know, more drinking and ambient and things to fall asleep and then more, um, stimulants to wake up in this vicious cycle that never allowed for good sleep. And so when Ryan took his life, um, I was pretty depressed about that because I thought, you know, this is one of my older guys from my first platoon and he's a better seal than me in, in every way. Uh, and he was actually, um, a little bit younger than me, but, um, if he was at risk and took his own life, then what's stopping me from falling into the same trap and taking my own life. And I, I really thought long and hard about that because I didn't understand why, but I knew that now I could be at risk. Right. And so I, I remember locking myself in the bedroom for the whole weekend. I was pretty depressed about that. And so when I came out of that, um, my thoughts were, I was confused for a long time, but I, my thoughts were, you know, what, you know, how did we get here? How do we get to this point where, you know, he was awake for five days and hung himself. It's like, Jesus. So I, 
you know, Frank, his dad, his impression was that um, TBI was the main, uh, you know, cause of, of all of this. And he set down a path to to solve the issue of traumatic brain injury and um, the tau protein buildup and, you know, all of these different things that we're identifying now that didn't actually exist uh, or weren't common knowledge at the time, uh, Dr. Pearl's work and all that. Um, but my approach was, I think sleep had a lot to do with this. And I, my question was, did, you know, does sleep and mental health, um, are those associated in any way? And, you know, I kind of got mixed answers. I started talking to doctors. I walked around Balboa, just popping my head in and talking to this doctor and that doctor. And what I found, you know, with all due respect is that most of these doctors have no idea what they're talking about with sleep. Um, it wasn't, you know, and there's only, you know, maybe two weeks of training pertaining to sleep and through med school. And so what I found was that the, the guys and gals that knew something about sleep tended to be, um, either in pulmonary medicine, which has to do mostly with obstructive sleep apnea. So they work in sleep labs, stuff like that. Uh, but a lot in neurology, uh, psycho, uh, psychology, psychiatry, and, you know, now we have kind of these new fields of uh, neurobiology and neurophysiology. And so, and of course, there's different kinds of doctors, right? There's MDs that, um, you know, a lot of times are going to push pills in surgery. Uh, and then there's PhDs, which tend to be researchers and research oriented. And so what I found was that there's a ton of good research out there, uh, a ton of very smart people working in this field perhaps a lot of that doesn't, that information doesn't get passed down at my level as a SEAL, as a military person. Uh, and so I thought, well, okay, so they have all this information. Is there a relationship? And it turns out that there is a bi-directional relationship between mental health and uh, sleep. So that means sleep can cause mental health issues and vice versa. So I, at that point in time, decided that I wanted to follow this path of uh, unpacking sleep, understanding the relationship with mental health. Um, I wanted to kind of take a perspective of, you know, what are the, you know, external stimuli factors that can impact sleep kind of like as a neurological function, like do light, sound and temperature impact our sleep? Uh, as well as all kinds of other things. And so that was kind of the main focus. Um, I went to grad school, did a bunch of research, wrote a paper, uh, and began my career in sleep. I, I want to roll back to something real quick. Um, when you say you saw him do it and you thought, could you be next? Yeah. I, I want to understand, and I want the people listening to understand, you seem... At, at the forefront of your game, you seem that you hurt and stuff, but but not like that. I, I'm just trying to understand the the mental capacity that goes into thinking, if this guy does it, why can't I? Because you, by all accounts, are okay other than the back. You're not taking any medicine. You're not on any opiates, anything like that. So I'm just trying to understand where does that come from? I don't know. I, I, it's a weird phenomenon. Um, but I think that I just held so much respect for Ryan and held him in such a high regard as someone who had more experience in the teams, had more qualifications, more deployments 
And so I looked at him as a tough dude and just, you know, I'm, I'm going to kind of live in his shadow and I would like to be more like him. And so for him to take his life was devastating. It broke down my entire mental construct of what strength and, and sort of, um, you know, this, this stoic figure was. And so if I am modeling myself after someone who is this really strong stoic warrior and that guy just offed himself, well, then doesn't that mean that that's a possible path for me? And if I don't fully understand why it is that he went down that path, what was the mechanism? What was the trigger? Why did he do this? Don't really understand it. Then how am I to understand how to avoid it? And it's just a fear and perhaps it's irrational, but it absolutely was um, a real fear and vivid at the time. And I think a lot of people would say to that, well, just say that you're not going to do it. I think it's taken at a very base level. We'll just say you're not going to do it. Yeah. And so I, I want people to understand that it, it's deeper than that, though. It's not just a this might not even be a conscious decision on your part, how you're just explaining it. It's almost subconscious um, because something from deeper within you is telling you that not that you were ever even thinking about that because you were never suicidal before that. Correct. No, never thought about it, never anything. So it almost seems to be a subconscious level thing that kind of led you to that decision. I think so. Yeah. Was there ever a time where it got really bad or was it just that first weekend where you kind of had to lock yourself in, work yourself through it, or did it get worse? You know, my, I did choose no, obviously I'm still here today. Um, but the way that I chose to deal with that, cause there was anger, there was frustration, there was sadness, um, the way that I chose to metabolize that trauma and to make, you know, turn it into a good thing was to sort of bury myself in this work, bury myself in this work because I couldn't save Ryan, but perhaps I had the ability to save others like him and, and stop that, you know, um, stop that from happening. But that to me, when you say that, almost sounds like your answer about if you could just keep moving in the seals, if you could just have a mission, if you could just have the next kind of goal to get to, everything's going to work itself out sooner or later. Is it kind of the same thought process? Absolutely. Absolutely. The real uh, solution is to to face those feelings and deal with them. And a lot of times uh, therapy helps out with that talking to a licensed therapist that knows what they're doing. But I got to tell you, that's not happening in the teams. And it, it took me years to be able to open up and be able to trust a therapist, uh, whether they're at the VA or outside of the VA. And uh, now I feel like I'm a little bit more mature and can kind of see the value in all of these different modalities. And so, yeah, I'm absolutely open. That's why I can talk to you about this stuff today. I wasn't able to talk about this stuff at that time. Um, so for people that are kind of struggling with it, um, you know, one thought is, oh, well, I don't want to get off, you know, my deployment cycle. So I don't want to talk to the psych and, you know, ruin my my status and be held back from deployment. Um, and that's that's a very real threat. But at the same time, um, there really is value in uh, 
you know, getting professional help to work on these dark thoughts and work on these traumas that, you know, we didn't ask to have them impact us, but here they are. So would you say you're still very mission focused? Well, that that's part of my personality, but I'd say over the last year, um, I've really become much more spiritual and I think, um, you know, again, you have to experience loss, right? And, you know, going through this uh, second divorce was really hard on me. And so I think I'm less focused on um, the outcome or winning or staying fully engaged and more focused on um, sort of taking care of myself each day and making sure that I'm a whole person and that I show up and I'm present for you and for my friends and for everybody else in the world being a hundred percent, being the best that I can. That's all I can do. Uh, and just letting, you know, God guide my path, honestly, just being open to letting, um, things happen as they should versus, uh, maybe kind of trying to control things, trying to control all of the outcomes of everything. Do you ever worry that when there's not a mission there? And the reason I ask that is because a lot of people, when they retire or they leave law enforcement, first responder, military, for a while, they lose that sense of purpose. They lose that sense of mission. They don't know what it is. So let's say your company takes off. The whole world starts sleeping. Everybody is getting cured. You, you understand what I'm saying? Do you worry about what's going to be the next obstacle? I did it at 28, yeah. did it at 29. Now I'm doing this. And if this goes good, are you worried? Like, what's going to happen when I reach the end of this one? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's probably less of a concern now, uh, but that's absolutely a concern. Um, I think kind of where I'm at now is um, I'm okay. I've accepted my life. I accepted kind of like where I'm at. And the biggest thing for me is trying to, you know, come back to my practices each morning and live a healthy lifestyle and just be present and enjoy like everything for what it is. Uh, each and every day, not worrying too much about the past or too much about the future. And so if uh, my business uh, never succeeds, if the nonprofit isn't able to make an impact, if all these things that I'm working on don't pan out, that's okay because I'm actually enjoying myself right now on this podcast and being present and in the moment right now is exactly where I'm supposed to be. And the reason I ask that question is because I'm thinking for me, like I feel like I'm pretty happy, uh, content with where I'm at in life right now. You know, uh, where I'm at being married, where I'm at family wise, where I'm at job wise. Um, but there's always that hunt doing this show, trying to get bigger, trying to get more people. And I feel like I always kind of need that hunt. And then when you reach the end and you go, huh, I did what I set out to do all right, what's next? And then you got to kind of look around. I ask that question because I, I fear that I will do that too, that you reach a point where you're like, huh, now I got to try something completely different. Um, and I think that's a, a worry for a lot of people. I don't think they think about it until it comes at them because I don't think a lot of people prepare, uh, once again, in all the areas that we're talking about, I think they look at retirement and I've said it before where they go, man, I'm not going to come to work and I'm going to go do what I want to do and this and that. It took my dad a year and a half after he retired 
before he figured out what he was going to do from day to day. He told me for the first year and a half, he was so bored, watched TV, just did nothing until he could figure out what he wanted to do in life. And that's what I worry about people is that's where we get off track because they just think, hey, I'm going to retire. It's going to be different. And then they get there and they're like, holy shit, what am I supposed to do now? Yeah. I mean, there's a bit about being a man. And I, I hope that I don't offend anybody by saying that, but there's a bit about being a hunter and maybe an adventurer that's inside all of us. Um, and it's something that isn't necessarily present in our wives. This is something that, you know, we've done for thousands of years. And so I think for the man, we do need to prove our manhood through uh, adolescence into adulthood. We do need to be on the hunt. We do need to have some sort of... Uh, you know, what's the word I'm looking for? A stock, right? If, if it's a uh, business or if it's a, you know, an aspiration, I think it's okay for that to be a part of our experience here on earth. And we just go do it. But I would ask that we all just try to appreciate um, the journey rather than focusing only on the outcome, right? Yeah, I, I think so. All right, let's talk about some numbers because I really want to get into this because it's very cool what you're doing now. I took these numbers off your uh, stuff. Since 9-11, 7,057 service members died during military operations. Uh, the number of suicides was 30,177. It, it, it's an astronomical difference in the numbers. First, let's talk about this and then what we're going to do to fix this problem because it's gone on far too long and affected far too many people. That's right. Well, those numbers are, are already outdated. Um, and I, th I think we pulled those numbers from the, the VA website, if I recall. Uh, but the, the point is, and, you know, I've got people that argue with me about this on social media, you know, the 22 veterans a day. I don't care if it's 16 veterans a day today. Uh, the point is, is to communicate the epidemic which is, you know, whatever the number is, we pick 22 people. Uh, that's kind of the branding. We understand 22. Uh, in February 22nd of this year, you know, we did 22 push-ups uh, every hour on the hour for 22 hours. That was a lot of push-ups. Uh, it was a good chest day. Um, but we do this because we want to build awareness. Now, building awareness is one step, but then there is um, actual things that we can do directly, uh, applied, um, services, or, you know, a lot of times, you know, the VA will give you counseling or medications. My approach to this, this suicide is improving sleep and improving mental health, right? And if we improve sleep, well, we have to take a step back and think like, well, what can we actually work on? And so from my perspective, um, you know, I started building technology that uh, helps keep a, a good circadian rhythm. Uh, but then fast forward, you know, I've been doing this for five years, going on six years now. What I've learned is that there's a number of different problems that people can develop with sleep. But if the sleep gets better, the mental health always gets better. Always. If the sleep gets better, the mental health will get better. And we have, uh, you know, doctors that we work with. And for one, uh, Dr. Garb Mishra, he's an MD, he's a psychiatrist. We worked together for a long time. He'll tell you the same story. It doesn't matter what prescription he gives somebody. If the sleep doesn't improve, typically the symptomology will not improve. However, if he can get that sleep to improve, 
typically the symptoms will improve. And so somebody working in mental health sees it every day, kids, adults, all of it is speaking about this. And so I got to listen and I keep hearing the same things from people that work directly in this field. So if we want to improve sleep because we want to improve mental health, uh, really what we're talking about is human performance. We're talking about well-being. There's not a whole lot that you can do during sleep. Uh, I'm working on a, you know, an audio frequency algorithm that I'm trying to patent and be able to launch that next year that actually will help impact your sleep while you're sleeping. But, you know, generally speaking, we can only focus on the things that we can do while we're awake. That's all we can control. And so a lot of the stuff that we focus on now outside of light and sound therapy is, you know, like cognitive behavioral therapy, um, behavioral mechanisms, habits, things like that. What can we control throughout the day or improve upon that will impact our sleep and impact our wellness, impact our performance? And this, the side effect of that is a better outlook on life, less mental health concerns, just a better immune system, overall better health. And so we don't do anything that has any you know, pills, drugs, surgery. Everything we do is non-invasive. Um, but most recently, uh, I'm working for uh, 62 Romeo as a nonprofit directly focused on veterans and first responders. We're doing a ton of work with firefighters. They, they've got it. I'm looking at the uh, statistics for firefighters, and it's not good. Uh, so I'm very happy to serve those guys and gals. Um, I, I feel like, you know, if, you know, if this is my mission, right, and I've this is my, my obsession. I'm, I'm truly loving it. I'm, I'm happy and fulfilled, uh, being able to give back. And now, you know, the first few years I, I felt like I was just kind of treading water, but now I'm finally starting to make progress, finally starting to impact lives. And that part feels good. And I don't intend on stopping anytime soon. I want to make a bigger impact. So, all right. So let's talk about the process, uh, what it is, because it's, pretty cool when you get into it there's a there's a lot that goes into it it's it's six weeks uh so i'm gonna be right up front a lot of people are gonna look at it and go wow six weeks and i gotta do this and i gotta do that explain why it's set up the way it is why you do the things you do and why they should do the things in this to help them get towards a better goal yeah so www.62romeo.org, 62romeo.org. You can go there, you can sign up, you can put your name on the list. It's no cost to veterans uh, and first responders. Uh, we are in the process of getting funding to take care of everybody. So it's kind of like first come, first serve basis. But this is nothing that you need to be afraid of. What you need to be afraid of is not doing something about your sleep health or getting, you know, on a, a sleeping pill regimen for the rest of your life. That's terrible. There's all kinds of side effects, increased mortality just to start with. Um, but the process of 62 Romeo is pretty simple. Uh, I'm not going to say it's easy, uh, but it's a lot more lightweight than you might think. Uh, it's not going to be the same as like going into the doctor's office for this heavy therapy. Everything's virtual. We send you a box, you get your box, it's got a light and sound machine, it's got a sleep measurement device, it's got a t-shirt, it's got a book, it's got a workbook, and you get to work. Um, the way that it's set up is six weeks. It's one hour Zoom calls just like this um, once a week. 
that's it. We give instruction, we give uh, sleep coaching, we give education, we give all this stuff in that one hour. And then it's your job to uh, carry out to the best of your abilities, um, you know, what we tell you uh, throughout that week. We measure sleep in two different ways throughout the 62 Romeo process. One is uh, objective, which is the ballistic cardiogram. We send you the sleep mat, goes under your bed. You can just kind of set it and forget it. If I can take uh, Ron Pompey's uh, quote, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to charge it. You don't have to, you know, once you set it up, it's good to go. Uh, that is data that's pouring in. We can see exactly how you're sleeping. The other piece is subjective measurements. We do sleep diaries every day. It just takes like 30 seconds. You fill it out. Boom, you're done. Uh, we teach relaxation techniques. So I think it's important to point out the four pillars of 62 Romeo. Uh, there are the sleep hygiene education. There's the light and sound therapy. There's the uh, relaxation techniques, which is part of the autonomic nervous system response mechanism that we're trying to get a handle on. And then cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, which is nothing too heavy. Uh, we're just reframing thoughts and, you know, perhaps some sleep restrictions, but we have, you know, certified sleep coaches that uh, go through the process. But I'll go ahead and tell you the secret. The secret is we all know how long it takes to establish a habit, right? It's like three, four, five, six weeks, somewhere in there. That's why it's six weeks long. We could condense all this in one week and just hammer it out, but we give people time to allow their bodies to catch up to the new habits and behaviors that we're teaching. You get knowledge, you get a little bit of training, you get practice together. We have, you know, Janelle comes on and does the breathing exercises. You got a tool, you get a new one every single week. You choose your journey, right? You choose, you know, what works for you, where you need help. We give you enough tools to where you can kind of solve your own problem, right? And you figure it out by the time you're done with the six-week program. And all of a sudden, we what we see is in week four, five, six, we start to see this spike in everyone's sleep performance. Uh, what I mean by that is everyone starts to improve once those habits start to set in. So not that hard. I'm not going to say it's easy, but this is a much better alternative than drugs or surgery or some of the more common stuff that's that's not good for you. Let's talk about some of the people that have gone through the program already. I know that you've had a SEAL that, that spent numerous years in. I know you had a surface warfare guy. You've had a couple other people come in. Can we talk about kind of their experiences from your point of view and then uh, how other people you think that it can affect them? Yeah, I would say that um, most of the people that have gone through uh, rave about it. Uh, there's always going to be people on, you know, the uh, ends of the bell curve, right? So people that have phenomenal success and people that have marginal success, and then everybody else is kind of clumped in the middle. But overall, we are crushing it. I mean, in terms of improving sleep, these are ridiculous numbers, like across the board. How do you get an entire group of people to improve their sleep by this amount? It's a lot. Um, and so we have some people that are just like, you know, I, this changed my life. It saved my life. This is sort of the way, right? Uh, and I'm one of those people, right? I live it. I go so far above and beyond just the things that we teach uh, by going through my practices every day that, you know, I'm not perfect. But when I come back, 
uh, to center after I have a bad day and I don't meditate or I don't exercise or I don't eat right or whatever. As long as I have the general consistency, I'm going to get the result that I want. So, you know, I think, you know, Jason Tushin is one of our uh, videos on the website. He, whenever he talks about this, he describes the, this as the disciplined approach to sleep. And I love that because it just, it sounds tough, right? Um, other people have said that this is a very stoic approach to sleep. Um, I love it all because we're, uh, we're giving, we're empowering people to take control of their own sleep. It's kind of like personal training, right? You go into the gym, you have your personal trainer, he helps you kind of get to a certain point, and then you're good. As long as you keep uh, up with the exercises and continue that, you can maintain that. Well, we kind of do that for sleep. This is a bit of a sleep boot camp. You go through it, you establish these habits, and it's your choice. But if you choose, you can continue these habits and have successful sleep for the rest of your life. And that's a real solution. Can we talk about the sleep node? Yeah, absolutely. So I am an inventor. Um, I've been called a renaissance man. I enjoy reading books like Leonardo da Vinci. I challenge the status quo. I question everything. And when I took the approach to sleep, I, I looked at like, okay, what is evidence-based? What is actually working? What is the science pointing us towards? And I let the science guide my creative and artistic hand in inventing and developing technology. Originally, I started with Sleep Pod, and we'll come back to that, but I got uh, halfway into it. I'm just like, man, we need a ton of money and a ton of resources to finish this. So we decided to, my team decided to build something that was a little bit smaller and easier, but might have, um, a, we wanted something that was less expensive and more of a ubiquitous solution for the average person. Right. And I was a bit skeptical at first. I'm like, no, I love my sleep pod concept. I want people to be fully immersed and I want to control everything kind of thing. Um, but the sleep node came out of a necessity to build something that was smaller, less expensive and more of a ubiquitous solution for the average person. Because, you know, the original prototype for our sleep was going to be um, this sleep pod. It was very big and heavy and might have more of a commercial application. So we needed to get something built and done so we could start making an impact. So in comes the rest node. And we originally called it Yoga Sleep Node. We got sued by Yoga Sleep. Who knew that was a company? Uh, so we couldn't use that name anymore. Um, yeah, so we, we pivoted to rest node. Um, and so the rest node is about the size of a wall clock. It goes over the sort of mantle of your bed, over the bed stand. Um, it has two lights on it. One emits a uh, amber frequency, a very calming, relaxing light. There's zero blue light. It's tested in a laboratory. Um, very, um, you know, controllable with good uniformity across the panel. It's an industrial panel. It's an, an OLED panel made by OLED Works. And then I have a second light on there that is a full spectrum light. And the full spectrum light is equally as important as a zero blue light. Right. So at nighttime, what we're trying to do is uh, calm down the mind. We're trying to eliminate that blue light. We're trying to emit the frequencies that the retina and the suprachiasmatic nucleus in the brain that's receiving those signals and controlling the body clock and melatonin production. The melatonin is the uh, hormone associated with sleep. Right. We want the brain to get the right signals. Right. And it's not getting those when you're sitting on the 
your computer, you know, you got all these electronics in your face with the blue light, it tricks your brain uh, and can retard the melatonin production. Well, uh, we solved that by offering a bio-friendly light for nighttime, this amber light, zero blue. But then in the morning, it's also very important to get consistent light signal into the retina, which resets the circadian rhythm. So that other light is a full spectrum light. It does have blue in it. It's it's basically a white light, right? And so when that comes on, it's subtle, but over time, over a couple of weeks, you start to uh, grow accustomed to it. Uh, not that you need the device to go to sleep and wake up, but this helps maintain a circadian rhythm, right? And a circadian rhythm just means circa dia one day, right? So each day, if we have some consistency to our schedule, our bodies really like that and our hormones really like that. All of them can stay in, in synchronicity. So both of the lights are important. Uh, then we put in a speaker and we built a speaker box uh, to make it sound good, uh, kind of like Bose Wave. Uh, we did the physics on the, the volume of air, the speaker port size, and the uh, tube associated with that. So it's really engineered around getting the right light and sound frequencies out to the person. Uh, but more importantly, uh, there has to be a software element that um, allows for scheduling, right? So we need a circadian schedule. So this whole thing is wrapped around this software that we designed. So the app connects to the rest node and you tell the rest node, what time do I want to wake up each day? How much sleep do I need? Um, when do I want to go to bed? That kind of thing. And it kind of calculates it for you and it just gets you on a consistent routine uh, from day to day. Uh, we also, since it's a computer, we have the ability to connect to other smart home devices like, you know, the sleep measurement devices. Uh, you can also control um, like smart lighting, uh, thermostats, things like that. So you can create the total package for the environment. So once we designed this and I thought about it, I'm like, wow, actually this could have a greater impact because now we're really getting into people's lives. We're getting into their routines, like deep into their, you know, their bedroom and their behavioral uh, routines. And so for those reasons, I thought, man, this is really going to have an impact if we can just get people to use it. So now that we have uh, people using it and messing around with it and loving it, enjoying it, um, the I think really the game has just begun. Uh, we've had some issues with chips from China, figuring out supply chain logistics and all that stuff. Uh, the last couple of years have been kind of rough, but I'm here today with a finished product. And now in terms of the rest note, we just need to get the tooling paid for, and then we can go into production to make this uh, device and like mass produce it and be able to provide it for everybody across the country. How far do you think you're away from that? Um, maybe 70 grand. That's, I mean, technically that's not a lot. Is there any way that people can help you reach that goal? I will reach that goal. Um, I, I don't need anyone's help to get uh, the money for tooling to, uh, to build this product. It's a business. Uh, we'll figure it out and we'll get this thing out there. What people can do if they want to help is uh, that 62romeo.org is a nonprofit. It's set up to help uh, veterans and first responders. People can, if you're a veteran or first responder, you can go on there, you can apply 
um, to, for benefits, or if you want to help somebody, you can sponsor a veteran or first responder. You can sponsor one, you can sponsor an entire cohort, which is 15 people. And for certain organizations or nonprofits, uh, we're getting them to, uh, you know, sort of stand up a cohort for the whole year. Uh, we don't work in November or December. We take off during that time, but for 10 months straight, we can do one cohort every month. And that's kind of like, uh, the gold package, right? Uh, in terms of sponsorship. So we do everything at cost, um, which, you know, we're kind of rubbing nickels together to do the 62 Romeo. Uh, but we believe that it's the right thing to get this out to as many people as fast as possible. All right. And finally, I want to talk about exist tribe a little bit with you. Um, just kind of the focus of it and, and what we're trying to do with that exist tribe. Yeah, Exist Tribe was founded in 2017, and the goal was to bring uh, technology to include the rest node uh, and the virtual sleep environment, to bring technology into the world that helps out with sleep. That's the focus. Um, Exist Tribe is a for-profit C, C corporation out of Delaware. We're going to build hardware, and we're going to sell it, and we're going to do business fairly. Uh, we're going to you know, maintain a, a positive environment where we put our people first. Um, but that company has been growing at its own pace. Uh, we never took on investors. Uh, we just let it grow organically. Uh, and then to sort of give back, that's the 62 Romeo uh, nonprofit that I'm a part of. That is a, a tax deductible donation if people want to contribute on that piece. And that goes directly to the veterans and first responders. All right, let's talk about where everybody can find you. Um, if you want to give away Facebook and things like that, or just the websites and stuff, but let's talk about where people can find you and where they can kind of go to find more of your story. I think the best place to go is uh, to that 62romeo.org, um, but I'm very responsive on LinkedIn. Um, I don't do any of the other social medias. I'm trying out TikTok, posting some videos about sleep and stuff like that. Uh, and that's a little bit of fun. But traditionally, you can find me on LinkedIn. I think it's, uh, you know, www.linkedin. Uh, or forward slash Robert Sweetman. I think that's what it is. But you can just search Robert Sweetman on LinkedIn. Um, if you, you know, mention the DTD podcast, then I'll just go ahead and accept you as a friend. Um, I get a ton of, you know, ads and people trying to consult yeah. and sell me stuff. So yes. I just kind of filter through that stuff. But I'm a, I'm a normal guy and I am willing and open to talk to anybody, especially if it's somebody that has good questions or if they're in need of help. Um, you know, that's that's kind of where I'm at in this chapter of my life. So, yeah, please reach out. Well, you have an amazing story and a, an amazing product. When you go on and you see these videos of these guys that have used it, I mean, they rave about it. I, I haven't heard, you know, on all the different podcasts that you've you've done and talked about this, everybody that's come on and talked has said that they love what you're doing. So I think it's an amazing thing. Guys, uh, remember, you can go to LinkedIn. You can find him. The link will be there at dtdpodcast.net. You can also find all of this information, find out how to do sponsorships and things like that for the nonprofit at 62romeo.org. And then uh, I think that's going to be it for the show tonight. Uh, you guys know where you can always find me. 
can find me on Instagram at the DTD underscore podcast. You can find me on Facebook at the DTD podcast. And you can find me on YouTube where all these conversations are in video form. Make sure you guys go to dtdpodcast.net because that's the one-stop shop for the podcast. That has the audio, video. Robert's going to send pictures. You're going to be able to see the product. You're going to be able to see pictures from his career and pictures of what he's doing right now. It'll also have all the links for him on there. So everything you need to find out about him, the show, or his story will be there at dtdpodcast.net. Also, don't forget to go to our sponsor, Police Coffee at policecoffee.com. You know that we do this every week and we talk about police coffee. I'm telling you, it's going to be some of the best coffee that you've ever had in your life. It's an officer-owned business, and it's dedicated to crafting the finest coffees and blend. They're shipped to you as soon as they're made, and they provide you with the freshest coffee available. Each batch is roasted fresh by people who know what it means to stay vigilant, and their specialty coffees do not waste one drop when flavor is concerned. Their coffee's some of the best, like I told you, that you'll find. But remember... It also serves an important cause. They give back to our community. 50% of their profits go towards helping family members of police officers who fell in the line of duty. So don't forget to go there. And when you do and put your order in, make sure you do DJK10 for 10% off your order. Well, guys, that's going to be it for the show. Thank you so much for coming on, Robert, telling your story. I hope that this thing blows up and that people can sleep all over the world. Guys, that's going to be it. That's Robert. I'm DJ. Catch us on the next one. We'll see you later. Bye. Bye.